in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scars. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple, the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. I am Andrew Berg, and joining me to talk about Kalen DeBoer and all kinds of new coaching excitement, it's Gaby Lucas. Gaby, are you able to hold it together with so much stuff happening? I am. I thought for a while about the worst way to introduce Kalen DeBoer, and I settled on all DeBoer the Kalen train. Oh, Oh, damn it. That's a good the one. very worst possible option. So over the last few days, obviously, um, the Apple Cup is dead and buried. And Washington, after seven years on top, was thrashed by Wazoo. And their uh, fans predictably handled it with grace and <laughs> the ki- acting like they've been there before. Forgiveness. Uh, yeah. Uh, doing all the things that they, I'm sure, would have wanted our fans to do for each of the last seven years. The rumors at the time were about Matt Campbell, earlier Dave Aranda. Um, things moved quickly, and between from kind of late Sunday to early Monday, it became clear that Kalen DeBoer would be moving from Fresno to UW. And Tuesday, we got the press conference, and everything is in stone at this point. What were your thoughts on the process itself? Obviously, we kind of talked over the last couple of weeks about you know, speculating about different coaches. Some rumors came out, um, but it seemed like DeBoer was a name that was on the board from the very beginning and always seemed like a very realistic target. And that's where we landed. How did that strike you? Does this seem like a unified plan or did did it seem like kind of settling for a backup plan? I think um, that was kind of one of those I, I was going to say it's one of those situations where, but really there's no situation like the circumstances that like UW's been in a coaching search like that before. I mean, not only has UW not ever been in a situation like that, like nobody has been in a situation like that where you have what initially UW, USC, Florida, LSU, um, what else? Virginia Tech was a legitimate. Yeah, Virginia yeah. Tech, yeah. And then, of course, now, obviously, Oklahoma, Notre TCU. Dame. TCU. Yeah. yeah, there we go. I, was, I knew there was another one, a couple that were missing. Um, like, I don't, I mean, to, I feel, I feel like to come away with a genuinely satisfying can, uh, hire in those circumstances is in itself like a pretty big deal. I, for, for what it's worth, I'd never really thought that Dave Aranda like I didn't think he was, I didn't think he wasn't a candidate, but I, I thought the chances were pretty slim. So I, I kind of went into this whole thing as thinking from the get-go, it would be DeBoer simply because the circumstances were so insane. And then, and he was like, you know, a good candidate where that progression made sense. And then, and then when the Matt Campbell rumors started coming along at first, I initially was like, no, he's not, no, there's no way because I mean, all the jobs that that guy's turned out in the past is to even have had what sounds like very credible rumors that, you know, I mean, we offered him $7 million per Mike Varel per multiple sources and, and he still didn't come, which is kind of his thing. 
And I've decided I'm going to be an Iowa State fan from now on because I really do love him. So, so obviously when we didn't get him and there was, and ended up with DeBoer, like there was a little bit of disappointment simply because we didn't get Matt Campbell. But like, if I take out the thought that Matt Campbell, probably the amount of places he's turned down, just like Chris Peterson, when he was at Boise state for like nine straight years. Yeah. I'm pretty, pretty dang. All right with this. And, and I, I, yeah, I also, for, for what it's worth, I did enjoy Jen Cohen's um, remark at the press conference that was like, we're, we're, we're something about like, yeah, we're going to bring some innovative football down. And like, I, you know, I don't know if that was like, she meant to directly fire some shots, but just from pure fan standpoint, I'm like, yeah, that <laughs> shots fired. So. Yeah, I, I it was an interesting that, that some of the, the messaging at the press conference I seemed maybe a little bit unnecessary to say innovative offense or whatever. Like I, I would settle for a functional offense. I, I don't really care if it's innovative or not. I, I thought, you know, we could talk about the press conference. He did seem like he aced the press conference. It was like he saw a list of things that people were posting on Twitter or on message boards <laughs> that they were worried about. Yeah. And, and said it, all the right things about them. I, the one that stood out to me was he talked about how we need to be a leader, like one of the leaders in the conference in recruiting. He's going to surround himself with people with a lot of experience and success in recruiting, because that is kind of the, the thing that jumps out about his resume. Like he's won a ton of games. He's had like marked and measurable success in on offense, on his kind of dominant side of the ball. He's developed players exceptionally well. Uh, all these things there's evidence to support them. He just hasn't recruited at this level before. So there's no evidence to support his ability to do it. Um, And I think the reason that that's meaningful, the the comments themselves are meaningful, go back to something we talked about a lot over the course of this season, which is Jimmy Lake seemed either too stubborn or too, you know, willfully blind to acknowledge his own misgivings or failures. Uh, when something would go wrong, he generally didn't seem willing to take responsibility or try to change it. And just saying like, these are areas where I need some help to get better is at least Mm -hmm. kind of the first step to improving in that area. And I I don't want to be like beat a dead horse and spend too much time talking about, uh, you know, the areas where DeBoer and and Lake, like all the things DeBoer is obviously so much better as a person, like the kind of, yeah, the wounds are fresh. I don't want to, to pile on, but I do think the the willingness to acknowledge your own shortcomings uh, or areas of, for opportunity for growth are is is refreshing, and it's it's nice yeah. to hear that when you you listen to a press conference like yeah. that. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I think also like when you look at not only the coaching spots that were available this cycle, which was like everybody and their mother. Um, the, also, if you looked at the candidates, like they're really, I, I think I think put a pin in that this made me a couple of the stuff that he said at the conference like that made me really happy because that was one of the few identifiable question marks versus when you look at all of pretty much all across the country like the the available candidates like at any school wasn't really that it was pretty much an underwhelming candidate pool to begin with other than like Campbell maybe Aranda and like, and, and someone, you know, I'm sure people are like, well, you link like USC got Lincoln Riley and it's yeah, sure. <laughs> but when you look at like, it, it turned into a running 
gag that I started posting in like the our, our writers group chat and to an extent on our UWDB Twitter that there are no good college football teams this year. And I really, <laughs> I stand by that. Like there really barely was. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that's reflected in when you looked at the coaches across the board that like, you know, UW could poach, there wasn't really <laughs> anyone that looked that good. And <laughs> as you saw with how most, how so many teams this year played kind of mediocre. And, and so hearing, circling that back, I think Kalen DeBoer to me feels like the high, a, a very, a very high ceiling, not as high of a floor as somebody like say Matt Campbell, but, but a high enough floor, I feel like where then when you add in just him having like self, basic self-awareness at, at like that introductory press conference, that's not me feeling like, all right, well, these were his weaknesses. And he said, he's gonna, yeah. he, like he says, he noticed, knows them. So we're good. But when I think about the potential candidates that were available across like all 132 schools, and then I feel, I felt, feel pretty dang good about DeBoer. And then you add in just based on first impressions, have like understanding what he needs to do at this level and how it differs from Fresno, I'm feeling pretty decent. So yeah, yeah, you could say like nailing the press conference is a low bar, but it is a low I mean, bar. We yeah. have seen pretty frequently in recent history, and not just for UW's coaches, that not every coach clears that low bar. Like some guys yeah. end up tangled in a web of missed, you know, missed cliches and coach speak in these press conferences, and end up looking like idiots. And he did not do that, so that's positive. Uh, I, I said a couple minutes ago, I was going to try to limit how much I talked about Jimmy Lake and contrasting them, but I am a little bit preoccupied with this topic and I want to get your point of view on it because it, it's striking to me how distinct they are, not just distinct, but kind of opposite in so many ways, like on their resumes themselves, uh, you know, you've got an offensive coach against a defensive coach. You've got a guy who was, you know, kind of cut his teeth in the NAIA, like, about as low of a level of college sports as exists versus one who really talks highly of his experience as an NFL assistant. Uh, you know, one of them is very understated and direct and simple in his communication style. The other one works really hard at sound bites, you know, kind of on yeah. down the list. It's interesting to me uh, to think of it that way. I don't, think at the end of the day that uh you know either jen cohen or anybody else involved in this search chris peterson whatever his involvement was specifically targeted somebody who's the opposite of jimmy lake but i do wonder if some of those things that they they saw fail over the last couple of years the the lack of self-awareness the uh you know attention to detail and game planning the willingness to adapt uh, were things that they said, oh, you know, that might have been a blind spot for us before. Let's see if we can address this a little bit differently. So with that in mind, tell me a little bit about how you think that evolution played into this. And and is there anything about that that makes you particularly excited about DeBoer? Like, what are the things that, that you think he will be really strong at? Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, it's all just kind of conjecture. But I think there was just, it, it might've, you talked about when we were 
like two weeks ago or whatever, we're talking about the coaching search and you talked about how Matt Campbell's teams always looked really solid, kind of like those old Boise teams and, and, or like UW in, you know, 2016, 2017, save for the ASU, what, <laughs> seven point game. But uh, I, I feel like DeBoer's teams aren't necessarily that level of just like super mega honed in. But when you look at their, like, I, I watched it a little bit of Fresno State this year, and it just felt like something where tactically, other than there was like one game where they lost by an amount of points that you never want to happen. And other than that, like, it felt like they were always tactically um, and schematically just, just, just attacking the defense in a way where that kept them kind of kept their opponents kind of on their heels and kind of flat footed um, because there's nothing stagnant about that offense. And, and actually now I'm curious, I'm trying to remember um, what that game was. That they didn't got look beat good. by Boise pretty badly. That was, was it one. Boise. It might've been. Yeah. They got kind yeah, of, yeah, it was Boise. Yeah. That was the only, uh, yeah, 40 to 14. And other than that, they had one loss to Hawaii by three points and then the loss to Oregon by seven um, where they, almost they were really close to beating yeah. Oregon and that was that was fun to watch until it, they didn't beat them um but yeah I feel like they maybe on like defensively maybe aren't like the level of super fundamentally I mean I think they were fundamentally pretty good from what I saw on defense but it wasn't I don't think it, it's necessarily on the level of like you know 2016 through 2018 kind of UW defense where like when one of our guys hit an opponent in space you knew that person was going down you know but it's still I mean when you look at when you look at when you watch their offense it's kind of a it's almost like the opposite of how UW's kind of whole identity was uh up until this year that is where it, it felt like you know with UW's defense they could you could be kept in any game because no one was going to score more than 30 points um, at, at most or at most 35, I suppose. And with this, it's not, I feel like the um, Fresno teams, at least when I watched them, like they weren't super, they weren't so offensively focused that they were, it, it wasn't, there wasn't an imbalance necessarily. Like it wasn't this great offensive team and just garbage defenses from them, but it felt like, balanced enough and you can count on them to have like an offensively dynamic approach that will kind of always keep them in games other than that one Boise game. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm going to be looking for. I'm also just excited to see whether it's Sam Heward or the return of Jake Hayner, if that happens. And I think it'll just be exciting to watch like the a quarterback be able to play in a system that doesn't come from 1988. Uh, so that's nice. Yeah. I, I think I didn't, I don't think I watched as much of Fresno as, as it sounds like you did. I, I watched most of that Oregon game and a, a good chunk of the UCLA game and maybe a few plays of when they played Boise, but it did seem like I'll probably go back and watch more of it now, honestly, but yeah, it I felt like uh, they, they didn't, they made things relatively easy on themselves. Like they, they mm -hmm. didn't, they, which is something we did not do. Like we were yeah. so yeah. orthodox in our approach 
and so stubborn in maintaining it that if the defense was giving us something that was slightly different than what our original game plan was, we never really got there except by luck. Like the only time I remember that happening was, I think it was, oh God, I can't even remember which game it was now, but whenever uh, we just ran wildcat for the entire second half, was that against Oregon state? Uh, just like 30 snaps in a row. It was like, oh, this is somehow working. Let's just do this over <laughs> and over, uh, you know, written off most of that. Uh, memory already but it seemed like you know that there are a few fundamentals they they'll probably have something like a 60 40 pass to run mix and they'll spread the ball around but other than that there were it seemed like there were a lot of different approaches within that it wasn't like oh we're going to run 30 bubble screens like there's a little bit of everything in the offense they're throwing yeah. in the flats they'll throw down field they'll throw over the middle they'll go deep and it kind of depended on what the defense was you know, either giving them or what their weaknesses were. And that was really encouraging. And like against Oregon, you saw a lot of like medium to deep passes over the middle because their secondary early in the season wasn't playing particularly well Uh, against UCLA. They ran the ball more because UCLA was weaker in run defense. Like that seems so simple, but we haven't done that in the last (laughs) couple of years. And honestly, I feel like it's been a few years since we had the personnel and the coaching that allowed us to have a versatile offense um, that could really adapt from game to game. Um, you did touch on something that we haven't, there hasn't been a lot of conversation about lately, uh, or at least in the, you know, since DeBoer accepted the job over the last couple of days. Um, he's an offensive coach. Fresno's defense was not, not nothing special. Um, they were okay. They gave up 40 points uh, to Boise. They gave up, uh, large numbers, Nevada, 32 points, um, Oregon, 31, UCLA, 37, Hawaii, 27. It was not a great defense at all. Um, we've kind of become accustomed uh, aside from the one clearing flaw with the power run defense this year to having really good defenses. And notably this, the Apple cup last week ended, I think it was an 86 game streak. Of yeah. It was 2014. Yeah. 35 points or fewer. So going back before Chris Peterson took the job, um, I think it was the, yeah, the middle of his first season or something. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, does that concern you? I mean, do you think we're going to be in a position where we're, I, I you know, we, we don't know who the coordinators are yet. There've been some murmurs and lightly sourced rumors that he might be bringing both coordinators from Fresno. Are you worried at all that we're going to see like systemic slippage in the defense over the next few years compared to what it's been over the last six or seven years? Um, I kind of have a little bit of mixed feelings. I mean, for one, it, it, you know, there obviously Fresno was a, was it like an offensively minded team this year, but they weren't like, it's not like they had a bad defense, you know, they just weren't like necessarily stifling or anything. I mean, they shut out Wyoming, which it's not like Wyoming's great, but it's, they're playing with relid with, comparable talent levels and then and uh and and most of the it looks like most of the teams other than Boise like they you know held San Jose State uh to nine New Mexico to seven um they held San Diego State who's ranked to 20 ranked because of their defense yeah (laughs) they were not good offensively yeah yeah yeah, for sure Yeah. yeah yeah um and and like the times when they gave up more points like to UCLA and Oregon it was like they're playing teams who are you know they have 31 and then 37 points to Oregon and then UCLA and 
you know, those are teams that are, have obviously have massive talent advantages and massive resource advantages. So that, you know, makes sense. Um, I think they're, and I think, so that is definitely in the back of my mind though, that like, just, just because it, he is, DeBoer is more offensively minded coach, but there is kind of a part of me too, that feels like our defense was, had become stale anyway. So I felt like if you had asked me this two years ago, for example, then yeah, I might, I might be a little bit more antsy, but I think right now I'm, now that it's all the, you know, the, this, the strings have been cut from Jimmy Lake, like, and, and you can kind of, you can admit with impunity what your thoughts might've been before that, you know, there is a little bit of me that feels like it's time to not necessarily rethink the defense, but just make adjustments to the way that we think about it anyway, that wouldn't have happened ironically with the more defensive minded approach that Washington has, you know, taken in the last three, four years. But, but yeah, I mean, there is, it's, I, I can't say with certainty one way or another, but those are, those are kind of my two main thoughts or I guess three, I suppose, if you include, yeah, well, our defense will probably be a little bit worse, but I think it also might be a little bit more balanced, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's, that sounds right. I, the word that was coming to mind for me was refresh. Like the defense yeah. can kind of use a little bit of a refresh. It doesn't need a complete overhaul. Um, I think there's, there are talented players, exactly, uh, yeah. both on the depth chart now and also in the pipeline who we haven't really seen play a lot yet, especially in the secondary. Uh, but, you know, maybe being a little bit more flexible about how we structure our defensive front um, and how we use our inside linebackers might help with the, the run defense a little bit. And also just having a more, I, I, you know, I think even DeBoer mentioned this in his press conference, a more stable and uh, productive offense will help the defense a lot. Exactly. Too because yeah. Force, you know, one, get them off the field a little bit more often and two, um, force defenses to abandon uh, or force opposing offenses to abandon a very simple, straightforward game plan. If they yeah. have to ever play from behind, which we did not do a very <laughs> sure. good job of. Um, so we talked a little bit about, you know, what the rest of the staff might look like, but setting aside, you know, maybe even specific names, but what kind of things are you looking for in the coordinators, the position coaches? Like, what are the things that you think are, you know, essential and what are some of the, the desires you would have for the rest of the coaching staff that DeBoer brings in between now and, and, you know, I, I was going to say the start of the season, but it would be between now and a month or two from now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I, I don't think you necessarily have to make splash hires in the sense of, oh, that's, you know, in, in the sense of hires that are like very from take poaching people that are super high profile and, that people that automatically know and throw a parade for. But I mean, there is something to be said that like his contract is what it's, I think it's average annual value is about 3.1. I think it goes up like a hundred thousand dollars every year. Whereas the sort, as like Mike Farrell said, corroborated by multiple sources that they had offered Matt Campbell, 7 million. So I think there's definitely something where like you saved all this money on this guy so now use it, you know, you don't have to, it's not like you have to use up all of that extra, but 
but I mean, you now have effectively four million more dollars plus the norm, whatever normal assistant salary pool you were putting together. That that there isn't too much of an excuse to not look at where you can upgrade with that money. And and obviously that doesn't mean you have to like abandon all <laughs> like guys who otherwise would be cheaper. You know, I I think Grubb, his offensive coordinator, it sounds like is coming with him. Um, as well as I think his, there was one of their, um, I think there was another source that said maybe they're like safeties coach, which I kind of like the idea of a specific safeties coach. Um, but, uh, you know, so if there's guys that he brings over that not just out of loyalty to them, but genuinely are up for the task, then great if there's a few of them. And, you know, I think sounds like uh, Adam's might be is probably going to be retained although nothing is confirmed yet um you know i wouldn't be shocked to see malloy retained and and you know i think those are there's plenty of value in that but yeah you're going to be left over with some money so you should have fun with it <laughs> and not only should you but uh and it, but um yeah there's there there's a very real reason to to take advantage of that now it's funny you say that because those two names Malloy and Adams were exactly the two guys who I, I kind of if we were going to keep anybody from the current staff I would want to, to keep around and I do think there's value in maintaining some continuity mm-hmm. uh, for recruiting and also because you know while uh, DeBoer does have a pretty decent amount of experience in California on the West Coast in in a hotbed of recruiting where we absolutely have to build relationships and recruit he has no ties to Washington um, and being able to navigate the, you know, the summer camps and the high school coaching and everything else here, having some uh, coaches who have built those relationships will be helpful. And mm-hmm. if, if possible, if there's somebody within his network who fills a need, uh, who has more of that experience, I'd love to have them add somebody like that to the staff as well. Like we talked about before, he has never recruited on this level. He's never recruited in this area. And that's going to be very, very important. Uh, the, the talent is on the roster right now, left over from two <laughs> coaching staffs ago to probably improve quite a bit right away. On the other hand, he's going to have to be able to recruit at that level on his own, both in high schools and the transfer portal to maintain the level of success that what he'll need to keep his job. And some of that is probably going to have to come in support from his, his assistant coaches. So hopefully he's able to find uh, the right balance there, especially since it seems like he, it really legitimately from his offensive coordinator time uh, and, and the, the numbers that bear it out that he can build an effective offense pretty much on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, obviously he'll have assistants supporting him in that, but uh, maybe having one or two guys on his offensive coaching staff who are less tactically, you know, like their strengths lie elsewhere. Their mm-hmm, specialty yeah. is more building relationships with high school coaches and seven v seven coaches and things like that to help build the the talent pipeline in Washington and the rest of the West Coast. That actually seems like a pretty good place for us to take our break. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to keep talking about Kalen DeBoer. We're going to talk about the transfer portal, some of the other things that that we've been hearing and what might come to fruition. We're also going to talk briefly about uh, the Pac-12 title game, actual football game still being played and do an extremely thorough breakdown of the USC versus Cal game that's being rescheduled for this weekend. So stick with us and we'll be right back on the other side. Welcome back. 
as I said before the break, we're going to talk about the epic USC versus Cal showdown that's coming up this weekend. But I lied about how long we're going to spend on it. We're going to spend no time at all on it because the game has literally no implications for anything. And one of the coaches is gone and the other one hates his job and it's going to be miserable. Uh, so let's instead keep talking about uh, Washington's new coaching staff. Uh, one of the things that has been a hot topic Tuesday evening as we're recording is the possibility of transfers. The most recent report was a, that Jake Kaner, familiar name, uh, has entered the transfer portal and is expected to come back to Washington, setting aside how his eligibility would work. How does that strike you? Like, does it seem plausible even that Sam Heward would be comfortable with this? And if he's not, why would we take a one-year flyer on somebody who couldn't win the job here before to chase away a highly touted recruit? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think I'm really comfortable answering like the first part of that simply because it would be purely conjecture on my part. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Yeah what is Heward's thinking or what conversations he and DeBoer or anyone have had. Um, uh, oh, I had a thought and it just left my brain. Hayner, Heward, one year. Oh, shart. What? I had a, th I, my brain doesn't work. Um, oh shit. Whatever. Um, but, um, I mean, oh, I remember, uh, Two things. One, I think it's also, I feel like the hashtag Hainer discourse <laughs> that has existed both that's going on like right now as he announced he was going in the portal like two hours ago and it, like earlier in the year when he started to, it became clear that like, oh, Hainer at Fresno is, is like whoops ass right now. I feel, I feel like people are in, incapable, not in general, I don't want to be a condescending bitch, but I feel like a lot of people were like incapable of holding two thoughts about Hainer in their brain at the same time, i.e. that like based on all the practice reports at the time when he and Easton were competing for that job, like he threw it. My memory is he would be throwing like multiple picks every practice, like at least a pick of practice. And I think um, and I think obviously, you know, we don't know exactly what was going on, but I think it was probably the right call to not start him. That being said, I think he has developed really well down in Fresno in a way that like would not have happened had he stayed at Washington. Um, and while I don't think he's a perfect quarterback, like there was a couple moments in that UCLA game where I remember being like had had a couple like Hayner at UW moments like including one time where he I think he I don't know if he was sacked but it was he was stripped of the ball because he was not holding it super wisely and you know scrambling around and just kind of plays where if I had been like a big fan of Fresno I would have just been pulling my hair out um but I think for what it's worth if if you know that you're not gonna that Heward isn't gonna transfer if Hayner wins the job for a year, um, which granted it's impossible to know for sure. Cause these are like 19 year old kids or Heward's a night, you know, they don't, you know, they don't even know what they want to do half the time. Um, but if you know that for sure, then, then like, yeah, definitely take, bring him in because I mean, that immediately raises the floor of, of the, of the offense next year. Um, which raises the floor of the entire team just because it'll take 
pressure off of the defense. Um, and also if we're assuming Morris is transferring, which I wouldn't be shocked if maybe he stayed through spring and kind of played it out to see what would happen. Then, I mean, if he transferred and you don't bring in an, uh, another transfer, then your quarterback room looks real bleak because then it would, it would be Sam Heward, Jackson Stratton as a true freshman who is like a high potential, but developmental project. And then like walk on Camden Sermon uh, who got a snap at, at the Apple cup uh, for, I think it was a read option. Um, th- I mean, that I is that like play a, got blown dead anyway. Did it really? <laughs> technically? Yeah. Yes. He was yeah. in the game at one point. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that is like you, it, it, even if they don't bring in Hayner, if Morris transfers, and maybe even if he doesn't, like you really have to bring in a transfer anyway, because that is thin, young quarterback room that yeah. is not I, a good foundation. I, I, before the Hainer news, my assumption was the quarterback room for next year would be Heward starting, uh, Stratton, the true freshman, red shirting, uh, emergency quarterback, third string, and you know group of five or FCS grad transfer or upper class transfer to be named later as mm-hmm. the backup, the Patrick O'Brien role from this year, like maybe yeah. get a snap here or there. Yeah. The funny thing is Hayner literally fits that description to a T. He's just not the guy I would have expected. And he comes with all these other narratives and baggage around him. One being previous time at UW uh, and, you know, obviously didn't end well and didn't really go well when he was here. Uh, it's, it's, I have so much cognitive dissonance. Like when you were saying earlier that being able to hold these two ideas in your head, I've struggled with that because I watched that game against Cal when Browning yeah. got benched and Hayner came in as, you know, Chris Peterson, whose football judgment, I trust a great deal was like, this is the guy who's going to give us the best chance to win this game. And then he made, you know, the worst possible play <laughs> as soon as he came in. And that was kind of the end of it for him other than yeah. these practice reports, like you said, which were always bad. Uh, but then he left and played great. And that's, you know, players develop, players get better, but then, you know, there is the issue of whether he's willing to be the backup here or at least compete for a job that he might not win, especially at this point in his career. If there was a, a conversation with Sam Heward and he said, I'm willing to compete for the job. And if I don't get it, I'm, I don't mind uh, mm-hmm. learning this offense for a year and kind of making up for the lost development time from the last year that seems to not have happened. If that's true, it's kind of a best case scenario. Oh, yeah. That buys you a second redshirt year, although not a literal redshirt. He's using up eligibility, but also gives uh, him a year to learn the offense without having to go through the same growing pains we saw in the Apple Cup and hopefully actually get better because of it. So, you know, I'm not against it if that's the case. But like you said, we don't know what actually happened in those conversations. Um, Taking the quarterback position out of it. what other position groups are you going to be keeping an eye on kind of between now and spring practice, both for the transfer portal, but also just for how things could look different going into next year? Um, I am just super psyched for the, to watch the receivers. Like yeah. for the first, I haven't said that in so long. <laughs> like, no, actually, I don't think I've said that in since like Edison Ross. since Keith Price was yeah. uh, was our quarterback, but I mean, he, uh, 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 I mean there was a rumor that Jalen Cropper, the Fresno's other 
star, one of their star receivers was had gone into the transfer portal, but then apparently maybe he hasn't and who knows, but um, if, <laughs> if theoretically he came here too. So you have Terrell Bynum confirmed he's returning for his senior year. Um, who's just a good, reliable, maybe not the most over like overwhelmingly or like physically impressive specimen. Like he's not, there's not the blazing speed of McMillan or Odunze, although he is really fast. He doesn't get enough credit for that, but like having him come back, having Odunze and McMillan just confirmed he's not transferring, which is good. Um, Taj Davis looked pretty good considering, you know, he's a pretty low profile recruit and when he had to come in, Jalen Polk looked like he didn't get that many opportunities, but then at the end of the year when he did, he, you know, that's a really high potential guy. And then Giles Jackson, who <laughs> kind of had the occasional hair pull out uh, return as a kickoff returner, but he didn't really get any, any opportunities to prove himself like as in just a normal receiver. So I think it'll, that'll just be interesting just to see the opportunity there for him to, to play in a normal functional offense. <laughs> um, and, and when I think of those guys and then, you know, maybe you throw Jalen Cropper in there, that is genuinely exciting. And not, not like in the past, you know, in going into the 2018 season when we, or the 2019 season, when we had some new, uh, true freshmen who we thought, Ooh, that'll be fun to watch theoretically if they can figure their sh- shit out uh, as a true freshman. Obviously Puka actually did end up being pretty fun to watch, even if his uh, production at UW or his production, you know, is, was bigger at BYU after he transferred. Uh, obviously like Austin Osborne and Marcus Spiker, like they, <laughs> that was like blind optimism that never amounted to anything, but these are actual, it's a system that is receiver friendly and players who we've already seen be quite good for the most part, not without weaknesses, but quite good in the absolute most dog shit offense in the world. If you're from the perspective of a receiver or just a person with eyeballs. So when you mix that all together, I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, I think the receivers are legitimately exciting. You you mentioned that if Jalen Cropper shows up, I, I said before we started recording, and I I absolutely must repeat now that would give us a chance to play the McMillan Polk Cropper mm-hmm. uh, three receiver set named Jalen Jalen and Jalen by with a coach named Kalen, and they're all spelled differently, which is <laughs> the best thing that could happen. Um, I I a couple other position groups worth monitoring I, we're going to see a lot of changes on the offensive line whether you know in any case we're you know jackson sermon or i'm sorry uh jackson kirkland is gone uh to the draft in all likelihood i mean it's almost certainly i don't i don't know if he's literally said that yet but he will be um luke wattenberg is finished uh some question about henry bonavalu coming back because he walked with the seniors at senior day but so did Terrell Bynum, and he said he's coming back, so maybe that doesn't mean what we think it means. But if all three of them are gone and the only returners are Ulumu Ale and Victor Kearney, that, that leaves a lot of production <laughs> to replace, and we don't know exactly who that's going to be. There are a lot of interesting younger offensive linemen, but I'd kind of throw the depth chart out the window with a new offensive system, new coordinator, new head coach. So we could see a lot of changes on the offensive line. And who knows, we could have transfers coming in there as well uh, with that many guys headed out 
it would seem that there'd probably be room to take somebody in as a transfer, uh, possibly coming in next year. Uh, and kind of the same thing in the secondary, if both Trent McDuffie and uh, Kyler Gordon and also Buki Radley Hiles are all gone to the draft or elsewise, that would leave a ton of opportunities there. And we do have, I think, between Mark Hellestine and James Smith and uh, who am I forgetting? Drake. Uh, Elijah Jackson. Yeah, Elijah Jackson. Exciting, yeah. yeah and uh, Covington in the, probably is a Covington, safety, although yeah. he has played corner a bit. So. But certainly between all the guys who are on the roster now um, and then if there are opportunities to bring in other players there, we're going to see a lot of new faces in spring and then when the season comes around. So those are a couple of places that I'll also have my eyes on. Um, Anything else you want to cover before we kind of wrap it up on the coaching staff? The the one thing I I just kind of want to do this for posterity. If you had to guess right now, and obviously a lot's going to change between in the next 12 months. What is your record prediction for next season? Not trying to, you know, say what will Kalen DeBoer's, how many Pac-12 titles will he win in his career or anything, but just for 2022. And as a reminder, the (laughs) non-conference schedule is Kent State, Portland Portland. State, and Michigan State. Uh, Okay. I'm looking at it right now. And Um, also the the conference schedule is on the rotation from this year. So Utah and USC are the two schools. Utah, I should say, and uh, Lincoln Riley's USC are the two schools we won't play. Yeah, next year we're playing UCLA and Colorado. Um, I don't even know how much Michigan State is returning, actually, now that I think about it. Um, So I really have no read on them. Um, But... I'm just, I'll be honest, I'm penciling that in as a loss because they're a top 12 team or whatever, and yeah. we're coming off a four-win season, and maybe there will be a miracle, but I, I certainly don't think we're going to be favored at the start of the year against a team that was, you know, good enough to pay its coach uh, $1.8 billion over the next 35 years. Yeah, I mean, i just go with nine, probably, as as my, like, baseline. I mean, I mean for what it's worth, you know, Kalen DeBoer is kind of walking into a really ideal situation as far as <laughs> as far as um schools if you're going to take over a four and eight team this is probably the four and eight team to take over because it which is which really make is what it makes jimmy lake's tank job of them like all the more impressive uh, with an asterisk uh because there is like you know we were just drooling over the receivers but i mean there's a like pretty there's no single position that is a inherent weakness you know not not really i mean inside linebackers are really thin but numbers but pretty good talent yeah yeah carson and now that we have carson bruner and eddie lafoscio like it's clear the two best guys instead of having to have one guy who rules and one guy who's kind of a like a ball and chain kind of dragging him down (laughs) honestly I'd, i'd say sermon over taxed as a starter or star uh really useful as a, a rotation yeah, piece like definitely. if he's our third guy in a three-man rotation I, i'm all over that yeah yeah and he I, th- I think for what it's worth a lost in the scuffle of how garbage this year was uh and you know how sermon is still you know not your guy that you want as your main starter but i think he did improve for what it's worth yes um, agreed uh a little bit um a little bit most games um but yeah like there's no just the <laughs> The, the, just the, the talent that is there at every single position um 
I, I mean, DeBoer said at the press conference that, you know, this isn't a rebuild, this is a reload. And, you know, it's easy to say something like that and, and feel like, you know, from a fan perspective, in many cases, that would really feel like just like lip service. But it really is true. They're, it, they're, they're re- every position is stocked well to go. Um, and it was just terrible coaching and schemed uh, implementation. Um, plus, in the case of the offensive line, Scott Huff absolutely being really not good at developing the insane <laughs> amount of talent that he brought in. So, yeah, let's go nine and three as a baseline. Well, that's that's more ambitious than I'm willing to go right now. Although I will say if we get the uh, the quarterback situation figured out and it goes from being a weak point to, you know, we're we get average or better production out of our quarterbacks next season relative to the rest of the conference. I think maybe I'm a little low here, but I I'm thinking if we can get to a winning record in conference, go five and four in the pac 12 and then win two of those three non-conference games and lose the Michigan state game. I, seven and five doesn't sound great, but from the baseline we're at now, I would not be mad about that. And then with an opportunity to maybe do a little bit better if the uh, quarterback play is better than what I initially expected. I, I, that would work for me. Okay. So that's where we leave it. You say they're going to absolutely win nine games, probably the national title. I say, let's take, let's (laughs) pump brakes a little bit. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Utah versus Oregon round two. Uh, As a reminder, the last time these teams played uh, Oregon was the, you know, very overrated uh, one loss team. They're number three in the country at the time even though most advanced metrics rated them as something like the 16th or 19th best team or something like that. They've kind of fallen in line with that. Now Uh, Utah is getting the respect that they have gradually earned over the course of the year after starting a little wobbly with the wrong quarterback, but their system has solidified itself. They pretty comfortably beat Oregon, although it wasn't a blowout. Did, Did you watch, did you like watch it, watch it? I, I watched probably the first three quarters of the game and I had it in my head that Oregon uh, that's just the fear. Like, kind of made a gradual comeback to make no. it look a little bit more respectable. No, it was 38 to seven and they went into the <laughs> that's half. That's not very respectable. I know, it really isn't. They went into the half 28 to nothing um, after our main man, Britton Covey with zero yes, seconds left. Yes, I remember left. that play. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, wait. Yeah, no, no, with, with zero seconds left or like, you know, it was like five seconds, Oregon punts it to Britton Covey. And he, and I think I was, I was watching that with, yeah, I was watching that with a friend of mine. Like we just had that on in the background and I jokingly was like, Haha, he's going to run it back, isn't he? And then he gets around the corner and you're like, oh my God, he's the mad lad's going to do it. And God, I love Britton Covey more than I love life. Oh man, that man is amazing. He's all five foot two of him and 80 pounds. Yeah. The question was going to be, is there any reason to expect this to be any different than the, uh, you know, kind of the the script of Utah's running game, offensive line controlling the game, and then being able to kind of dictate the tempo by controlling the ball and scoring when they need to? I I mean, I think it'll be closer than 38 to 7. But, I mean, I I just don't see – Oregon's offense being dynamic enough to compete with that. I mean, cause, cause I mean, the first half of the season, Utah was still kind of figuring their crap out. 
and playing the wrong quarterback as we all ended up learning. And, and, and Utah, I mean, Utah is just so fun to watch this year, honestly, because they're still, you know, a defensive team, but I think Cam rising uh, in the, in their running back stable is th- that combination is dynamic enough where combined with that defense, like you really have to have your stuff together to have bo- all of those factors contained. And I just don't think Oregon, I don't think on, on the offensive side, I don't think they necessarily are, you know, have the ability to push the ball downfield consistently enough. Um, and then on the defensive side, obviously, you know, Utah isn't ever going to be airing it out all that much, but, but Cam rising kind of because of his feet and how dynamic of an athlete he is, which I feel like I've used the word dynamic a lot today. Um, but he, you know, he forces defenses to kind of always be backtracking a little bit because of that threat he does pose. And, and so they're like just potent enough through the air where then when you put their, uh, you know, their, their running back stable, which is awesome. And Cam Rising's feet, which are great, even though he's a more, you know, he's not, I wouldn't say he's like a runner first, but, um, but he's just a really fun skill set. And I just, I think, I just think Utah is a much more, they're able to execute a lot more on both sides of the ball. So I, I don't, I think it'll be closer, but I don't think I can see Oregon getting through this. Yeah. Rising is an interesting archetype of a player. And he is, maybe, yeah. maybe this is like my own biases uh, or, you know, just the types of uh, players I have been most used to watching, but I, I kind of have the impression that guys who are good runners, okay. Passers, usually the weakness in their passing game is that they're a little erratic Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it can kind of run around kind of the Dorian Thompson Robinson vibe. Like he can run really well. He has a cannon of an arm, but he kind of turns it over every once in a while. Rising is kind of the opposite. He can yeah. run well and, and he can, he's precise. He has a solid completion percentage. He just doesn't have a, a gun to like yeah. chuck it downfield. So he it can kind of carve you up in a couple different ways. And that, shows up in the fact that he's only thrown three interceptions all year, uh, 17 touchdowns, three interceptions, 350 rushing yards. He's averaging almost eight yards per attempt, which is a very respectable number for a guy who's in a, in a run first offense. So there are, he does have more than one way he can beat you and they're all high percentage plays, which is I think yeah. the reason that their offense has become so much more effective and efficient. Mm-hmm. And then add to that, the fact that uh, Tavian Thomas has, you know, he is the big play threat that they lack from not having a, a, as much of a deep pass game. Uh, he can, he can absolutely break plays. So I agree with you that it's probably a little bit tough to see Oregon putting up enough points to match what Utah's offense has become in the second half of the year. The other side of it is uh, Anthony Brown probably played his best game of the year against Oregon state, probably deserving the caveat that Oregon state's defense is not very good and got worse as the year went on. Mm-hmm. But if he plays an outstanding game here, they have all these receivers who are really, really talented and they haven't really done a ton this year just because they, they've had to play a really simple game plan for a fairly limited quarterback. Uh, if he plays great against Utah, that might change things a little bit. One other thing about Utah, they do have three losses. 
but two of those losses are to the teams that are currently ranked uh, 12th and 19th in the country on the road. And those teams are uh, 21 and three combined San Diego state and BYU. Well, so and plus, Oh, sorry. Go on. They just ended up being a lot better than anybody knew they were when they beat yeah. Utah. So it's like, they're like, Oh, they're losing these like mediocre B rate non-conference games, but they were not B games. These are teams that are like, as good as the aforementioned Michigan state or something. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I mean, BY or Utah, the first, you know, four games of the year, five games of the year, maybe even um, when they lost to BYU and San Diego state. And that was when I was really starting to question myself because I thought, you know, I thought surely they were winners of the South this year. And like, I was so confident in that. Um, uh, I mean, they were playing Charlie Brewer for the first, for the BYU game. And he, you know, Clearly, they're a more um, productive offense with Cam Rising, and, and they really make defenses have to cover a lot more. Um, and then, yeah, then San Diego State obviously ended up a lot better. Um, did I feel like in San Diego State? I'm looking this up right now. They I benched feel like Brewer in the middle they, of that game. Yeah, had, so they were still had, playing Brewer. It's this is a very funny microcosm. Brewer finished that game with uh, 104 passing yards on 26 attempts, no touchdowns, and one interception. Rising came in. Uh, I don't know what the score was when he came back, but they stormed back into the game. Uh, and he had with 14 fourth quarter points, uh, which were not enough. They got it to overtime, didn't win it, but he had three touchdowns, no interceptions, and it wasn't quite enough. They still lost. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you look at those are their two losses to teams who are better than we realized they were at the beginning. Plus it was like the much more garbage version of Utah before they got good. Then yeah, I, I, I think it's not like those losses don't mean anything. Um, but they certainly sh- mean much less than the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight wins that they've had since then. Um, you know, and they had that one loss to Oregon state where Oregon state managed to put up 42 points which is a lot, um, but that was but a bizarre for the most game. Part. I think they were way ahead in that game and then just completely cratered. The teams ranked right behind BYU and San Diego State right now are Oklahoma and Clemson. And if Utah's had two non-conference losses on the road to Oklahoma and Clemson, um, yeah. I, I think we'd be talking about them as a you know like a fringe CFP contender rather than a um, you know also ran who could spoil. Oregon's shot mm-hmm. at national uh, re- relevance or whatever. Yep. Yep. Um, anything else on that? I, I say we, we wrap it up with our recommendations and plugs, anything uh, non-football related that you were able to kind of squeeze in between refreshing Twitter for coaching updates. I'm sure there was, I don't know. Remember <laughs> <laughs> it. Um, I do. This isn't a like recommendation of anything. I do have a, I'm doing, I think like a 10 minute set at um, Ballard Comedy Club this Monday on, I think that's December 6th, um, which is in the Palladium at, at Hale's Ales. I always want to call it Nathan Hale. I'm not doing a show at Nathan Hale High School. That would be weird. Um, but neighborhood high school. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, I don't really have any actual like suggestions that are worth anything um i we've i I think alluded to this in the past that uh not just you and i but a large number of the people who work on our blog are watchers and admirers and fans of the great british bake-off and it we it just ended last week and i i want i'm gonna say this might be the greatest season they've ever done 
it was really, really good. Uh, is the most excited I got about it. I was telling my wife when it ended, we were both so uh, anxious about who would win in the end. I said, every year I get really worried about who's going to win the British Bake Off and then immediately forget forever who won. And I don't remember anybody who's won in the past. But this year, I think I'm going to remember the person who won. Uh, it was highly enjoyable. If you've never watched this show before, um, I don't even know if I'd recommend it to somebody who'd never watched it before because it's just like, it, it's, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. I guess I'd say it's an acquired taste. It's Bake so off? low stakes. It's so like on in the background, but it just kind of grows on you and you feel like these are old family friends or something that you're just hanging out with for a little while. Uh, and by the end, you're like, oh, what? A, I just feel so warm and enriched for having watched that. That's such so an accurate way of describing that. I don't think I've ever heard anybody just nail it like that that perfectly. <laughs> so I'll just double. I haven't finished this season yet. Um, I'm probably like halfway through, but uh, I'll I will just also I'll just second that. That'll be my plug. You know, I have been sitting on some some analysis, some uh, an, uh, analogies to a couple of the Bake Off contestants. Uh, because I was worried that the other people on our Slack may not have finished the show yet. And I didn't want to spoil who goes out when. And I, as you will notice, I have been very careful with pronoun use in the last three minutes. So uh, I think everybody's safe. Rain totally spoiler free. Um, I do know so one spoiler. What's the spoiler that you know? I know that Jurgen, too pure for this world, yeah, did at one that's... point or exit early after kicking butt for the first like six episodes or whatever the the that the analogy Spoilers. i came up with has to do with him i think he's like a perfect analog to the 1954 hungarian men's world the, cup soccer team which is a German major i knew that <laughs> this historically really important team that changed the way other countries played produced this like wide-ranging influence that still like controls still how lost. soccer has spread and they lost in the finals to oh. i believe it was west germany it was, yeah it was west germany and uh, that was like the that was like the defining moment that took germany brought germany back into the world post-war um so it's a very that that match is like a very important part of german history even though most people i don't really follow soccer that much but most people i know who do a lot of them have never did not know that hungary like was a dominant force in international soccer and during that time period uh and that they revolutionized a lot um, I, I was reading a book about uh like the history of international soccer a few years ago and met somebody through work um and found out that she was hungarian and started talking about fering pushkas pushkas i didn't know how to say that and just got the most blank stare you could possibly imagine this is like I'm 26 years old and I'm not actually from Hungary. It's just my family. It's like, I'm deeply sorry. This is <laughs> prejudiced, probably a little bit racist of me, but very interested in this guy. <laughs> nice. Well, that's, well, all that's probably me. sufficiently off topic. So <laughs> we've got a new coach. Uh, got a, you know, a lot of unknowns didn't stop us from speculating. It'll be fun to learn more over the next few weeks and months, see how the roster shakes out, how the coaching staff shakes out. Until then, we can keep lobbying for Cody Pickett to have a spot on that offensive coaching staff. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs and happy football season.